good morning. And this morning we want to continue our discussion of the book of Acts. The title of this lesson is, is Paul's journey to Rome. He doesn't get all the way to Rome, but he gets a good way toward Rome. And he has an exciting period of time. So we want to take a look at this. Um, this is Acts 27, verses 1 through 44. So let me give you a few words of introduction, if I may. Um, I want to just take a quick look and a quick run through the book of Acts, just a big picture of the big sweeping themes. In Acts 1, the big theme was the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus focused on between the resurrection and the ascension. And then in Acts 2 through 6, you have the birth of the New Testament ecclesia, the early life, and the first explanation of what this is all about. And you, you might expect that this explanation was preliminary it, and it needed to be developed and it has been developed through the rest of the New Testament. Remember, Acts is a transition book. We're moving from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and we need a lot of understanding as to what that means. So Acts has given us our first glimpse at it. Acts uh, 7 through 10, we have the first martyr for Jesus who is Stephen, a marketplace man. And we have the persecution of the church intensifying. And you see the ecclesia scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and ultimately into the ends of the earth. Acts 11 and 12 shows the ecclesia shifting, the growth of the ecclesia shifting to Antioch and Syria. And it shows the first, first martyrdom of an apostle. The first martyrdom was Stephen in Acts 7, but the first apostle that was martyred was James in Acts 12. At least we believe that's the sequence of events. Acts 13 through 15 are the first apostolic journey by Paul and Barnabas. Now, Paul he was intercepted by Christ in Acts 7, and his conversion of Christianity is quite dramatic, and it's a picture. And that particular event is recorded three times in the book of Acts, it's like, okay, uh, there's something there for us to see and understand. So we need to really focus on that. So Acts 13 and 15, we have Paul and Barnabas going out. And Paul and Barnabas did not send themselves out. They were not self-sent. They were commissioned by their local church leaders to go out. The church leaders believed they had specific revelation from the Holy Spirit that they were to do this. So they were directed. Think about this. Paul and Barnabas were directed. They didn't just go. I think today, many times, we just make up stuff and go. And we need to get more clear on what the Holy Spirit's directing us to do. Acts 16 through 20, um, or right start right after the first church council in Acts 15. Acts 15, the church council comes up with seemingly some clarity, but really the clarity is not as clear as it needs to be. And the question is, do you have to become a Jew and practice Judaism to be a, a Christian? And the answer is no, you don't, but there's some stipulations. So the answer to the question, how is one saved? You are saved and become part of the body of Christ. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ plus you should abstain from meat offered to idols, from blood, from meat that's strangled, and from sexual immorality. While those are nice things and should be done, they really don't need to be connected with the process of the entrance into 
of being a member of the body of Christ. So there's a little confusion left that Paul will eventually clean up in the book of Galatians. But Acts leaves you a little bit um, concerned. Paul took this as an advancement because it's the clarity that came from it, even though it wasn't fully clear, it was better. And so he took that, launched into his next two journeys. Probably the most powerful part of the next section, Acts 16 through 20, is Acts 19. And this is where Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And two of those years, he had a discipleship initiative where they met every day. Can you imagine meeting with the Paul, the Apostle Paul, every day for two years and having him unpack and teach the Old Testament, which were the scriptures, in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord in Christ? Well, that's what happened. At the end of that two-year period, the scripture says that, or it infers that those people that were with him were so infected with Christ that then what it explicitly says is all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So it appears that discipleship was the predicate for evangelism, which is a powerful reality for all of us to see. Acts uh, 20 then is the transition when Paul begins his journey back to Rome, and he's going to, he's going to Rome via Jerusalem. So the first step is to go to Jerusalem, and he doesn't realize what's going to happen to him there. He's warned about what's going to happen, but he doesn't realize it. Once he gets there, he finds out he's really not well received, and he gets arrested very quickly. And of course, he's arrested by the political leaders, but it's the religious leaders that are driving things. The political leaders don't know what to do with him. In fact, for the next few chapters, uh, up until chapter 28 or 27, uh, it's the political leaders kind of wrestling with what do we do with this guy? He hasn't broken any Roman laws. It's all these, these, these religious people that are making these accusations against him based on their religious laws. And so the Romans never really could figure out what to do with him. And finally, Paul when he was threatened, when they, the political leaders are basically saying, we want to just turn you over to the religious leaders, he knew that would not go well. So he appealed to Caesar, which he had the right to do as a Roman citizen. And so the Roman authorities properly sent him to Rome. So Acts 27 begins the journey of Paul to Rome. So let's take a look at what the text says, starting in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. Now, notice at this point that Luke is now with Paul. Luke has not been with Paul every step of the way on his journeys, but he has been on occasion and he here is here at this point. So he's got an eyewitness to what's going to happen. And you'll see the rest of this chapter. You'll see Luke gives us a lot of details as to what happened on this trip. It's kind of like you get a, a really a close glimpse to life with Paul over the next few months, because this is a multi-month journey. We don't know exactly how long, but we know it was a lengthy journey. He, I'm going to speculate that he may have departed Caesarea sometime in the early summer, and it, it, this is going to take him all the way up to winter. So they set sail. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners. We don't know how many to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarked on a city of a ship from the city of Adramidium, which was about to set sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. 
We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So they're basically going up from Caesarea up the coast of Israel, which then turns westward. And so they stay close to the coast because the prevailing winds in the summertime were from the west. And that meant it was very hard to make progress. So we'll read about their journey here. It says, the, the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed along the lee of Cyprus. The lee is the north side. So they're, they're either hoping that Cyprus will provide a little protection from the wind, which would be largely from the west. And so they're making a little progress here. And it, it says, they, they uh, because the winds are against us, verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lucidia. Once they had gotten past Cyprus, they kind of get into the open sea. Cyprus provided a little shelter for them as they sailed westward, and now it's even harder. Verse 6, and then the centurion found a ship of Alexandria in Myra, uh, sailing for Italy, and they put us on on that ship. So they changed ships there in Myra, and we sailed slowly for a number of days again because they have that. They're trying to go westward, and they have that west in that westerly wind fighting them. Finally, they arrived with difficulty at Sindus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, they just we realized they couldn't just go any further at that point. We sailed under the lee of Crete. So they're near Crete now. And so now they're going to go southwest a bit. And so they're able to do that. And they get under the south side of Crete off Salmoni, coasting along with it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast had already already taken was already over. Now the fast was the the basically the feast of the atonement, the day of atonement. It was probably late September, early October, so it was probably two or three months that they have been sailing. And they're now at this place called Fair Havens. Now Fair Havens is not a great place to winter. And see once uh, November comes, there's no more sailing until March. You just have to stay in port because it's just it's so treacherous, so dangerous. The winds are very strong, and they're and they're. It's just not safe to try to sail. Your sailing time is March through about Oct- early October, and then that's it. So they're in Fair Havens, and Paul's going to give them a piece of advice. So let's just take a look at what he has to say. Paul advised them, saying, "Sirs, I believe, or I perceive." Now, this word means <clears throat> mental perception that the voyage will be with injury. And this could be not so much physical injury, as it turns out that was the case. It could imply mental injury. That is, your pride was hurt. You did something and it didn't work, and you're you're now kind of embarrassed. You've eaten humble pie, so that's the that could be the implication. Injury could be physical as well. And whether or not Paul really understood that, it's probably doubtful because of what he says. Notice what he says: that the voyage would be with injury and much loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. So he, at this point, he's concerned that lives are going to be lost, at the very least injured. 
Verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship. The centurion's in charge. He's running the ship. And as you'll see later on in the text, there are 276 people on board. And we know 101 of them are the soldiers, the centurion and his 100 soldiers. So then there's another you know, group of 100 and, say 175 people that are prisoners and sailors. We don't know how many of each is, was there. And there may have been some other, you know, maybe even some uh, passengers. We don't know that. This is a ship that is carrying grain from Egypt to Rome. So it's a commercial ship. And maybe they've got some uh, some room for passengers as well. Those details aren't given to us. Verse 12. And because the harbor, that is the harbor here in Fairhavens, was not suitable to spend winter in it, the majority decided to put out to sea and from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So you see, if they sailed along the southern side of Crete, they would the Crete kind of angles to the northwest. So Phoenix had the way it was situated was better suited for winter, protecting against the, the northeastern winds that were prevailing in the winter whereas Fairhavens was not as well protected. So they wanted to get to Phoenix. Paul says, you know, it's not smart. You're not going to get there, but they don't listen to him. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeastern struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Quada, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Now, the Sirtis were sandbars on north of Africa. The, so the, the sailors were probably looking at charts. They had probably some primitive charts, and they, they knew roughly where Africa was. They knew about these sandbars, the Sirtis. So they projected out what probably was going to happen based on the wind direction they perceived, and they looked like they were going to run aground there. That's not actually what happened, but that's how they saw it. So they started making precautions based on their perception, which happened to be wrong, but they started lowering the gear, which is probably anchors in the back. Thus, they were driven along. Well, the anchors helped slow them down. They're hoping to slow down you know, their advancement. They've already lowered the sails. They have locked the, the rudders, uh, and they're just being driven along by the wind and the currents, and they're trying to slow down their progress. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So the next day, they started getting rid of cargo to lighten the ship. And they think that will help them, uh, you know, minimize, you know, taking on water. Want to raise the ship a little bit so you've got a little more protection from taking on water. And then on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Again, we don't know exactly what that is because they, they still have their anchors. They still have some boats, lifeboats on board and other things. They still can hoist sails, so they still have some tackle. So this is obviously tackle they felt like they didn't need. They throw it on board again to lighten the ship. So now this is the first three days of the storm. They're lightening things up. Verse 20, 
when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Now, this is about probably, you know, two weeks thereabouts. That's what we'll find in the next section. No small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They believed they were going to be lost and they were going to die at sea. So that's where they are. They're losing hope. Now, going on here, verse 21, we have a something, a special thing that happens. It's called specific revelation here. This can be given to them, to Paul, who will then warn them. And now he will correct some of his thinking. Specific revelation is a wonderful gift from God. It's given to a person at a specific place in a specific time, you know, at a, in a specific situation. It's specifically for that person in that scenario that they're in at that time. And God works that way. And we find through scripture many examples of this. And in the application, I'm going to give you some, some more ex- illustrations of this. But just know this is an example of something that commonly happens called specific revelation. This is my term. I haven't seen other theologians use this term, and I'm not claiming to be a theologian. I'm just claiming this is the way I characterize it. Uh, Some people might just call it a word from God. I had a word from God, that kind of thing. Specific revelation is where God intervenes to give us specific guidance. And that is part of who he is as a personal God. He does this. So verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, now this is about two weeks later, men, you've, you have, should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete, that is from Fairhaven, and incurred this injury. Now this is probably pride. You know, you guys did this when I told you not to do it and look what's happened. You know, maybe he's rubbing it in, maybe he's not. Maybe he's just Pointing back, hey, I I explained to you this would probably happen. But, yeah, verse 22, now I will urge you to take heart. I've got a word of encouragement for you. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, they're more likely to be listening to him than they were before because his warning proved to be true. But now he's going to actually add more evidence to this. Verse 23, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God, before before God has granted you all, excuse me, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. Men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So you can see Paul is sharing a vision that has been given to him by an angel who appeared to him. Now, was it a dream, a vision? We don't know. This is not the first time in the book of Acts where we've had something like this happen, where there's been a dream or a vision. Remember in Acts 10, Peter had a vision about Cornelius, and that led him to to accept an invitation to go see see Cornelius. You know, Paul had a vision of Jesus when he intercepted him. So then he had a vision of Ananias when he's blind. So these are things that have already happened in the book. So this is not an unusual thing for specific revelation to be given to specific people 
in a specific situation at a specific time for a specific purpose. It is not canonical. It is not intended to be used for anyone else. It's very special, very specific to that situation. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things about the language here. Verse 23, Paul says, this angel of the God to whom I belong. The word there is emi. That is the Greek word for to be or to belong. It's present active indicative. Present tense is continuous action, meaning I am his. I belong to him continually. Active voice means I am active in this belonging. I am not passive. I function as one who belongs. Indicative mood means it's a fact. So the Greek language here is so powerful to convey things that in English don't necessarily come through, nuances that we would miss. And then he gets whom I worship. And there are two basic ideas of worship in the New Testament. One is refers to the internal heart, and the other refers to the actions that come from the heart. This is, this is the word, leturo, which refers to actions that come from a heart of worship. A heart of worship is not, we use that term heart of worship, and I'm kind of resident, you know, reticent to use it because I don't think we really know what it means. I think we think it's an emotional thing. It's not an emotional thing. It's a heart that is inclined to humbly submit to the will and ways of God and the time of God and glory of God. It's all about God. Generally, the, we have people coming and claiming to have a heart of worship that are just trying to do their will and trying to get God to bless it. That's not worship. Worship is done in spirit and in truth through the Holy Spirit transforming us and living in the truth of the word of God. That's what it is. So Latero comes from that heart of worship, a true heart of worship, not this pseudo-worship that is common today. And he goes on to point out that he was given this revelation. He did not ask for this as far as we know. This was the angel came and stood before him, you know, uninvited, you might say. I'm sure Paul welcomed it, but he had not sought it. Now, you find examples of specific revelation where people actually seek it, like like uh, David did in 2 Samuel chapter 5. You see him seeking wisdom from God, and God gives him a specific revelation there. But this is not a, a seeking situation. This is just where God has chosen sovereignly to give him this revelation. Well, let's read on verse 27. And when the 14th night had come, so this is all happening on the 13th or 14th you know, night, somewhere along in there. 14th night had come. As we were driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. I don't know how they figured that out. Luke is there. He he could have, I guess he could have explained more of it to us, but I guess we didn't need to know it. We just need to know they had the ability. They were enough, enough spirits enough as sailors to be able to sense something was changing. So they took a sounding. That means they, they heaved lead. So they had a rope with lead on it and they threw it into the ocean and see how far it went, measured how far down it went. And they found it was 20 fathoms. That's about 120 feet. A fathom is about six feet. It's about the the width of the distance between the fingertips when you put your arms out for most people. It's about six feet. So it's about 120 feet. 
The little farther, they took another sounding, and now they found it's 90 feet. So they're seeing that things are changing. They're getting close to land, probably. They can't see land. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. It's still stormy. They can't see the stars or anything. They just know things are changing. Verse 29, and fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As, see, so they didn't had not thrown the anchors aboard. You went and said they threw the, threw the tackle overboard. They didn't throw the anchors. They didn't do all the tackle. Threw down the anchors to slow things down. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship, see, they're fearful. If we run aground, you know, we're probably going to die because the ship's going to break up. The surf will break it up, and we won't have a clue where we are. We're probably going to be in a, a bad place. And they're thinking they're going to be on those sandbars north of Africa, which still could be tens or twenties or hundreds of miles offshore. So they're fearful here. So the sailors are about to abandon ship. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, we don't know if, if Paul actually received that revelation from the angel or if he's just looking at the logical consequences He's looking at them as being, you haven't had any food for 10, 12 days. Yeah, it's dark. We can't see land. We don't know where land is. If you get in a dinghy boat in a storm, you're probably just going to wind up being swamped and sinking, and then you're going to die. So he's telling, it could be that. We just don't know for sure. Then the soldiers decided to, to step up because and basically they're, they believe Paul now. And when he's saying, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved, he's talking to the soldiers. So they're hearing, okay, we're going to die if these sailors get off the boat. So they cut the, the ropes of, of the ships away to get rid of the boats. Now, they didn't get rid of all the boats. They apparently got rid of the boat that these particular sailors were trying to get into. I'm presuming it wasn't many of them. So the soldiers exercised their authority and stopped them. As day was about to dawn, now, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense. That is hopelessly, you know, floating around, driven around by these, this storm, and you haven't had any food. You've taken nothing. Verse 34, therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. You see, he believes everyone's going to be saved because he has specific revelation to that effect. But you'll notice that specific revelation did not cause him to be fatalistic. He continued to believe that he needed to be responsible, even though he knew what God was going to do. That's a powerful picture for all of us. You can know the will of God, what God's going to do. That does not give you a license for fatalism. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks. Now, the giving thanks is the word Eucharisto. You heard the word Eucharist there. And some uh, streams of Christianity, the communion is called the Eucharist. So he's given thanks to God in the presence of all he broke it and began to eat. So it's almost like he had communion for those who knew the Lord and everyone else also got to participate. It wasn't the same for them, but they got to participate and see the Christians take communion. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. 
And when they had eaten enough, in other words, everybody had their fill. What they were eating was bread. They lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So now they're getting ready to be rescued here. And the way the rescue is going to come by the sovereign hand of God. So let's see how this happens. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. They didn't know where they were. They were probably surprised. They probably thought they were going to be in Africa, but they weren't. They're actually in Malta, and that will be revealed in the next chapter. And verse 40 says, they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. You see, they saw land, so they're making for the beach. Get the rudders going, get the, you're going to launch a sail, to, you know, for sail to try to help them move forward. But they strike a reef. Verse 41, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. And when that happened, the stern was being broken up by the surf. Verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Now, the reason for this is because the rule was, if you're a Roman soldier and you're in charge with a prisoner, if the prisoner escapes, you get the penalty that the prisoner was going to experience. So these soldiers didn't want those penalties. So the the easy thing to do here is just, well, just kill the prisoners. And that way we'll reduce the risk that we'll have a problem. But Paul will intervene, as you'll see in a second. So the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. At least they should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks are pieces on pieces of the ship. So apparently by now there are no lifeboats left. If there had been some left, uh, they were probably discarded when the soldiers were trying to escape or when the sailors were trying to escape. And so it was that all who were brought safely to land, all made it to land safely, just as the angel told Paul would happen. So let me give you a point of theology. I want to talk about divine sovereignty and human responsibility and you know, we've been talking about that in recent days, and I want to continue that conversation because it's such a challenging reality. One of the ways that humanity receives truth from God is through general revelation, heuristically using sense perception, reasoning, and experience. An example of this was the warning that the Apostle Paul gave the leaders of the ship on the journey to Rome. Remember, Luke recorded in verse 10 that Paul said, Sirs, I believe or I perceive, I'm using my sense perception, I'm using my reasoning, I'm using my experience here, he's saying, and based on that, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. That we all have the ability to use sense perception, our minds and our experience to see things in God's universe, and we can reason to some truth. This is the beauty of common grace. Common grace does not give the ability to get to profound truth, salvific truth, or canonical truth, but we can get to some truth. Now, Paul's warning in verse 10 appears to have been heuristically based on his sense perception, reasoning, and experience. About two weeks later, Paul had a dream or vision during the night, and he was given now specific revelation. 
It's different from what he sensed in verse 10 of Acts 27. And now in verses 21 through 26, we have the record of the specific revelation he was given, which is different. In other words, his what he came to through common grace is being corrected by the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful gift that God does that. So he, he says this. He says, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So that's the specific revelation that turned to be absolutely true. Now, it would be easy to think that since God's will has been revealed and the will is to spare all the people, Paul could just relax, not be concerned about anything. Hey, we're all going to be fine. Doesn't matter what happened. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul is not a fatalist. He remains vigilant and responsible. So he basically engaged. He first tells the, you know, the, turns to the soldiers and says, don't let the sailors escape because that's dangerous for all of us. Well, how can it be dangerous if God's will is to save everyone? That's part of the mystery. We don't understand that. But he exercised responsible behavior and stopped them. Okay. So we have to know, okay, we can know God's will, but that doesn't give us a free pass. We have to stay engaged. We have to stay responsible. It is so tempting to be a fatalist. Once we know the will of God, it's so easy to get there. After all, how can the actions of man matter once the will of God is known? How can that be? We don't fully understand that. We've got to be okay with this this tension, this this something that we don't fully understand about how God's work. And we have to avoid the temptation of getting fatalistic. That is so easy and it is so wrong. So hopefully you recognize the beauty of this picture here, because we're all going to have situations like this where Paul, where the Lord's going to speak to us and give us something. And we're going to be tempted to get fatalistic and just say, okay, God's got this. I don't have to do anything. And that you cannot go there. So let's uh, let me just give you quickly a summary of how one theologian put this. And and this is uh, John Frame. He's a, a theologian that's alive today. Someone I respect a great deal. He's a Calvinist. So he's talking about this tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility as one of the mysteries of the faith. So he says this. The relation of divine sovereignty to human responsibility is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. It is plain from Scripture, in any case, that both are real and both are important and both are true. Calvinistic theology is known for its emphasis on divine sovereignty. He is a Calvinist, so he's arguing from that perspective. So this is an emphasis that Calvinism has, divine sovereignty. That's where they look to first, but they don't let that trump human responsibility. Reading on, for it's it's view that God works things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. That's a very famous text for the Calvinist. But in Calvinism, there is at least an equal emphasis on human responsibility, an emphasis that many would not be willing to say about Calvinism. And he said, in other words, he's saying, People that don't understand this about Calvinism are mischaracterizing Calvinism. But consider the Calvinistic emphasis on the authority of God's law. So he's given an example 
of how human responsibility is important. He says, a more positive view of the law than in any other tradition of evangelical theology. In fact, he says, there's no other paradigm, theological paradigm, that puts as much emphasis on the God's law as Calvinism does. In other words, Calvinism is very, very strong on human responsibility, although people would claim it's not. To the Calvinists, human beings have duties before God. For example, Adam failed to fulfill his duty and plunged the human race into sin and misery. But Jesus fulfilled his duty and brought eternal salvation to his people. Although God is sovereign, human obedience is of the utmost importance. So this is one Calvinist view of the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Now, a word of application. I want to talk about the gift of specific revelation. The story of the Apostle Paul's journey in Acts 27 is a picture of life. It's full of challenges. The trip from Caesarea to the island of Malta took months. Travel was difficult. There were many uncertainties. The last two weeks were the worst. The lives of all the ship on the ship appeared to be at risk because of a fierce storm. But in reality, all was under divine control. The will of the Lord was accomplished. This is a picture of life for all of us. Paul walked through this with grace and favor because he knew the Lord and he understood how the Lord worked. Specifically, Paul understood divine revelation. Now, God has chosen to use revelation to communicate with his people. This is how he works. The foundation of epistemology from a Christian worldview is revelation. And commonly, theologians think of revelation in two categories, general and special. General revelation is the revelation of God through creation that we can gain through sense perception and reasoning and experience, heuristically applied. Heuristic means to trial and error. We all can live and learn through the experiences of life. We can do that. Whether you know the Lord or don't know the Lord, everyone has the ability to do that to a degree. Now, this is available to everyone. Therefore, the revelation is limited. It's not salvific. It's not canonical. And some examples of this are, for example, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Or Romans 1, 18 through 20, where it talks about how what can be known of God, you know, can be known through creation. We should recognize this is common grace. Everyone can look at creation and see the reality that God exists. There's no such thing as looking at Revelation and seeing it, except if you deny it. That's the only way. You, In other words, as one theologian says, you cannot not see God in creation. I know it's a double negative, but he used that double negative for emphasis. God is here, visible to all. Now, the second form of Revelation is special. We know this is the revelation of God through Scripture. We have a written revelation that's inspired by God, and it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So we have, for example, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, explaining that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be perfectly complete, equipped for every good work. And the only thing you're called to do is good work. So Scripture is complete for equipping us for everything we are called to do. And so this is the specific revelation. But there is a third type of revelation called specific revelation. 
general revelation, creation, special revelation, scripture, specific revelation now is given to us. It's not canonical. It's not salvific. It's given to us at a specific situation, specific time to a specific person for a specific purpose. It's very, very contextualized. We have to be very, very clear. It's not general. You can't apply it beyond the context in which it was intended to be applied. So that's the challenge. Can we see that? Can we learn to live in that reality? That's hard for us. You know, we like to grab a hold of of specific revelation and apply it in multiple contexts. Can't do that. Great example of that was David in 2 Samuel 5. When the Philistines attacked, he asked the Lord, what should I do? The Lord gave him specific revelation about how to handle it. Frontal attack. A few verses later, the Philistines are back. He, David wisely prays again, even though he's had revelation how to handle attack before. He prayed again, and God, God gave him a different strategy this time. So you've got to know specific revelation is indeed specific. And there are many examples throughout Scripture, and in the book Acts alone, it shows up many times. For example, just a few places, Acts 11.12, Acts 11.28, Acts 12.7, Acts 13.2, Acts 15.28, Acts 16.7, Acts 18.9-10, and then Acts 27.23-24, which is what we've been talking about in this lesson today. In addition to specific revelation, we have to know there are types. There are types of specific revelation. There's requested, there's promised, and there's just some specific revelation sovereignly given without a request. So I've given to you the illustration of 2 Samuel 5, verses 19 through 23, where David requested revelation and God gave him revelation in two different times and different, different guidance in those two times. And then Jesus talks about promised revelation. He gave a promise to his disciples that when you're brought before authorities because of him, don't worry about what you're going to say, but I'll give you the things you to say at that time. So that's a promise. And then we have sovereignly given, you know, which without a request, that's what happened here in Acts 27. We're not aware that Paul made a specific request for revelation, but he got special specific revelation. He got it through the angel to guide him. That's the way God works. Specific revelation can clarify and correct observations. It's it's based on general revelation many times. In other words, you can have a picture of things and you ask the Lord and he might come in and correct your picture. When you use general revelation through sense perception, reasoning, and heuristically through with experience, that is trial and error, then you can see some things but the Holy Spirit may correct it as he did with Paul. Paul's first warning was a threat of loss of life, and in the end, there was no loss of life because that was God's sovereign pleasure to show him that he was going to spare all life. So we have to learn to work with God. We have to learn how he works, and we have to surrender to his processes. Specific revelation is a wonderful gift from God to guide and protect his people. We should be eagerly asking for it, and we should accept it in whatever way he gives it to us. And we should be so thankful when we get it, because it is the thing that will give us guidance into alignment with God. And when we get it, do not be fatalist. 
Never give up your vigilance and your human responsibility. Stay true to what God is calling you to do, no matter where it takes you. So may we have grace to do this well in Jesus' name. Amen.